0: Welcome to Finding The Front, brought to you by the proudly West Australian company, Euros Hartleys. This is a podcast series where we take time out to get to know the story behind the people who front some of Western Australia's leading companies. We look back at some of the moments in their life and career that shaped the journey to being the leader they are today, and provide you with some real insights into the way they think and approach things, both in business and in life. To so get the volume adjusted in your car or your headphones sorted and settle in for a great story. Here is your Finding The Front host, Tim Banfield.
1: Hey everyone, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of Euros Hartley's Finding the Front. Before I kick off and introduce our very special guest, for those not familiar, just a word on Euros Hartley's. Euros Hartley's is proudly West Australian with a long history of delivering results. We're a leader in the provision of wealth management, stockbroking, corporate finance, institutional sales, and targeted research services. Whether you are a fund manager, company director, investor, self-managed superannuation fund or not-for-profit, if you would like to know more about our services that we can provide that may assist you in achieving your goals, please visit our website at www.euroshartleys.com. Now, on to the main event. What an opportunity we have in this episode to spend some time with our very special guest, Western Australian entrepreneur, 40 plus year prospector, business owner, and mining veteran, Mr. Tim Goida. Tim was recently awarded the prestigious G.J. Stokes Memorial Award at the 2022 Diggers and Dealers in Kalgoorlie for his significant and long lasting service to the mining industry. In this captivating and seriously insightful chat, Tim shares his epic journey, including family and life, his upbringing on the farm, prospecting and pegging his first tenements in his early 20s, the early days of getting involved in listed companies, running a goldfield drilling company, right through to the background and story behind his involvement in DevX Resources and the two well-documented success stories that eventuated, being Chalice Mining and Lion Town Resources. There are so many takeaways on life in this conversation and the challenges of the ups and downs that come along the way in pursuit of a passion delivered with humility and humor tim's story does make for compelling listening so without further ado it is a real privilege and a huge pleasure to introduce to euros hartley's finding the front the chairman of lion town resources and devx resources and all-round good bloke mr tim goydie Tim and welcome to Euros Hartley's Finding the Front. It really is a privilege and mate I must say genuinely I am really excited. I have been for a while since I've known that you were able to come on the show and so thanks very much for taking the time out.
2: Yeah thanks Tim. I'm looking forward to the interview.
1: Good on you. Look there's so much to cover and before we begin I just want to kick off with where you are now and then maybe we'll take a few steps back if that's okay and To put it into perspective for the listener, I've put together a pretty brief overview, and I say that briefly because we'll cover off on a lot of it, but just to put the conversation into context. So for the listener, for those of you who aren't aware, Tim is a Western Australian entrepreneur, mining investor, and seen by many as a mining and resources legend. He has over 40 years experience in the resource industry, from vast exploration, to owning a drilling business, to building listed companies and he has an enviable track record of successful investment and serious shareholder value creation in the Australian and international resources sector. He has a deep understanding of the Australian and global equities markets, having raised huge amounts of capital on the ASX over his extensive career. Tim has been involved in the formation and management of a number of very well-known publicly listed companies. In November 2021, he stepped down as chair of Chalice Mining a company he founded in 2006 with a $0.20 IPO, raising around $7.5 million. He led that company for 15 years, overseeing the historic Julemar, Nickel Copper Platinum Group discovery. This company currently has a market cap of around $2 billion, with Tim still a major shareholder at around 9%. He is currently the chairman of emerging Tier 1 battery minerals producer, Liontown Resources a company that he also listed in 2006 at 20 cents. This company currently has a market cap of around $4.5 billion, with Tim still a major shareholder, owning around 15% of the stock. And he is currently chairman of Explorer, DevX Resources. This company has a market cap of around $100 million, and Tim is a major shareholder, owning around 15% of the company. For his lifetime of efforts, Tim received the G.J. Stokes Memorial Award at this year's annual Diggers and Dealers Mining Forum in Kalgoorlie for his significant and lasting contribution to the mining industry. So to give listeners a bit of an idea on the prestige of this award, previous winners include illustrious names such as David Reed, Sir Lawrence Brody Hall, Nick Georgetta, George Jones, Andrew Forrest, Ron Sayers, Mark Creasy, Mark Kutafani, and Gina Reinhardt. Wow, what a career and on behalf of all of us and the listeners, congratulations on the award, huge recognition and it's just the start but we can't wait to have a chat.
2: Well thanks Tim, I hope I don't let you down. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> a, lot, a lot to get through.
1: So Tim, one of the key things around finding the front is the background of our guests and this is particularly important with regards to your background and what shaped you as the person you are today. And I did some digging around. I noted that you were born in the beautiful, well-known southern town of Balingup in WA.
2: Well, that's right. I was actually born in Bridgetown Hospital um, in 1954. Yes. And <laughs> my parents had a farm at Balingup. Yeah, And uh, it's now the site of the um, uh, Balingup tree farm, or Padbury tree farm. Very pretty country, but that was a long, long time ago.
1: Gosh. Yeah. And and the tree farms took over down there, really, didn't they?
2: Yeah, they did. Yeah. Exactly, that's yeah. right. A lot of the farms were bought out for forestry.
1: And your family, how many in your family?
2: Well, on my dad's side, there's uh, seven siblings, and on my mum's side, I think there was five. Yeah. Wow, yeah. it's a big family. Big family. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And then they had
2: yourself. I have a brother and uh, a sister. Great.
1: Yeah. Great. And with the regards to your family, were you guys all together on the farm for a while?
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 yeah probably until, you know, end of high school. Yeah. And then uh, we went all our various ways. I stayed on the. F- I left high school and went back to a farm at Ineabba. Is that um, right? Where my dad thought he was going to be in retirement, but we ended up buying a property, or dad did, in 1969. At Anyabba.
1: Is that right? So that you moved from Bailing Up up to there?
2: No, there was lots of moves in between. Right, so, okay. So you know, yep. dad, dad was a beef and dairy farmer and they sold the property. It was a family farm at Bailing Up and then he bought a farm at a place called Yarloop. Oh, yeah, the, yeah. Yeah, right on the flats there. Nearly got washed out in one of the floods and then they bought another farm at uh, North Dandalup. Then uh, Dad retired for a while and, and I went to school in Perth.
1: Okay. So, did you go to a few primary schools on the way through there?
2: I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And you know, it's uh, it was good looking back. It was a good experience. So I probably went to about four or five different right? schools. How um, did you
1: find the the integration for new schools? You know, I, I know when you're young, it's not necessarily always easy trying to make new mates.
2: No, no. Well, you know, the country boys. Yeah, and you know, those days we had sandals or bare feet, and. <laughs> um it's like uh, everyone was equal. Yeah. And so, you know, Barney Up also had a sawmill there and as did Yarloup. And I went to primary school of both of those locations. And then at North Downup, I went to the primary school there. I had to ride a bike uh, about 8, 10 kilometers on most days. Dad used to save me sometimes and it was pouring with rain. Um, <laughs> and then I went to Pinjarra High School for a year and then I went to Hale. Okay. Okay. Yeah.
1: And did you board at Hale?
2: No, I didn't. No. no? No, the luxury been a day ago. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did you enjoy school overall? No, I loved it? school. Yeah. 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 You know, it
2: was quite challenging going from one school to the other and actually, you know, as you said, getting you know, a set of friends and settling in, you know, I wasn't top of the class by any means, but I really enjoyed it and I really enjoyed the company.
1: Yeah. Tell me, when you went to school and then you, with your mum and dad involved in farming, was it always a sort of career path? that you thought you were going to go back on the farm. Often I ask on this show, what did you want to do when you left school? And it's a question people want to know, but how did it work for you there?
2: Well, I guess I still ask that question today, actually, <laughs> what I'm going to do. But it's sort of, you know, like I love farming. It's hands-on. You're, you're dealing with, you know, animals and, you know, sheep and cattle, dogs, and it's a life to love. Yeah. So, you know, when I went, I left school, I didn't really know what I was going to do, but I was just over 17. So I went back to the farm at Ineaba with dad and yep. mum. Yep. That was very much a hands-on role, you know, pioneering stuff, really. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I really, really enjoyed it. But, you know, that's where I got into mining at Ineabba. Yes, mm-hmm. yes.
1: The mining comes naturally from there. But I was just going to ask, with regards to farming, I oh, actually... Coincidentally, we owned a farm up in Eniaba as well. We got from Queriting, but we bought another one up there. Oh, right. I was only little, but I just remember it as being pretty tough. At that point, what did you learn out of farming in terms of your further career, you know, resilience, the weather, the unpredictability of the weather?
2: And you had all that at Eniaba. Yeah. You know, (laughs) it was, you know, there's some parts very sandy, a tough country. Yeah. But, you know, very forgiving. Yes. It had rainfall most years. It had the easterly wind in the summer, so the whole place used to lift up, look like the Sahara Desert. <laughs> um, but it was pioneering stuff. You know, you got a frule out of developing a farm and, you know, progressing. Yeah, love that. Love that lifestyle. Did it sort of
1: develop in a way through your dad and your mum in that respect a sort of a can-do attitude?
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No sitting around waiting for someone to come and help you. Yeah, either financially or you know, just to help you physically do farm work. There was you know very few people out that way. Yep. You know, the nearest real town was Free Springs or Geraldton.
1: And did you used to go over to Greenhead or for a fish?
2: Yeah, yeah, we did, <laughs> we did. But you know that road wasn't put through then the, when we originally moved there from yep. Anyaba. Yeah, no, it was it was quite a. Uh, eventually to go to Greenhead.
1: Uh, (laughs) You mentioned that that's where you started to get into mining. What was going on around that time that caused you to want to start to look at pegging land or that sort of thing? Well, if we
2: just go back, I guess, you know, when I was at school in 1968, 69, 70, the nickel boom was on. And it didn't matter who you were or who you talked to, you heard people talking about shares, you know, going <laughs> from you know a few cents to dollars. And uh, then, you know, the big one amongst all that was Poseidon. And, you know, even our teachers were talking about shares. And my mum and dad were playing the share market and their neighbours were playing the share market. So thought thought, so what's all this about? You know, I followed it and I really garnered an interest in exploration. Yes. You know, how exciting, you know, and people going out bush and making discoveries and you know, share markets reacting accordingly. And it really, I, I guess, you know, I had that interest in the market, the interest in actually finding something. Yes. It just sort of grew on me. So
1: when did you start pegging your first tenements?
2: It would have been when I was about 20. Yep. Yeah, I had a really close friend who'd been working on a sheep station out of Leonora, who actually is slightly older than me, but he had the experience of pegging ground. You know, we used to go prospecting on the weekends. So not a lot to do at you know, no. There was very little in those days there. And uh, so there was a lot of activity. There has been a recent world-class discovery, um, a mineral sands discovery there. Yes. That was in sort of 1970, 73, mm-hmm. when I returned back to the farm. A lot of tenements were starting to get dropped. Right. So Chris and I used to try and work out who's, what ground had been dropped and where, and, and then um, we started slowly picking ground.
1: So this was clearly days before there was any sort of computer to refer to. How did you work out what ground was being dropped and the process around it?
2: That's a good question. It, it, there was no computer, you know, it wasn't, wasn't up to date then. Right. So they used to plot everything up and I used to subscribe to them and I'd get these maps sent to me every month. Or you go down to the mines department, literally go through the register, and work out what tenements are current and what weren't. Okay. So um, I became pretty apt at that and I, you know, got to know, you know, the staff at the mines department who are fabulous. You know, who's this? crazy young bloke coming in, <laughs> and, um, and I sort of learned a lot of the tricks of the trade. You know, I, I remember I worked out that most of the mines ta- department and register staff on Fridays just go across to the uh, Ozone Hotel across the road from the mines department. <laughs> yeah. So there'd be a skeleton staff there, but what they'd do, the register for each mining district, they'd go through and mark and pencil what leases were going to be dropped on the Monday. And I used to go there Friday afternoon, I'd drive, leave in here about four o'clock in the morning, I'd drive down, get there, and I'd go through the register and write these numbers down. And I either pegged it myself or I rang up a survivor to get them pegged on Monday. Gee. Pretty simple stuff, but it sort of worked. Effective. Yeah, effective.
1: Gosh, the things you learn. Exactly. Clearly, this was an area that you were going to pursue with all your might in terms of there's a fair bit of effort going into that.
2: Yeah, yeah well, you know, I'm trying to give you the lift version. You know, we made no money out of a farm, right? You know, yeah. I got a pair of RM Williams boots and a, and a new pair of jeans. That was to my pay. You know, most families pay. That's how they pay their children, really. Yeah. And, you know, for the experience of picking leases and prospecting, I was picking leases and selling them in sort of the preceding month or two for, you know, $10,000, $30, And 30000 There's a lot of money when you're 22 or 23. Uh, I a lot a- of
1: money, full stop. Back then,
2: oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah, it was showstopper, really, and or game changer. May I sh- probably should say, yeah. I also did a deal with I picked about 50, 60 leases for coal at Eniaba. and I sold those, well, optioned those to Lang Hancock and Peter Wright. Under that agreement, I had an area influence, and they picked about another thousand leases, which came back to me when they withdrew. But it was a great experience. So, did you deal specifically with?
1: Hancock and Wright, the the
2: two of them? I dealt with Peter Wright. Yes. And also Kevin Dalby, who was running Hancock Mining. Right. In those days. I met uh, Lang Hancock briefly in the corridor. Yeah. But uh, they were, you know, certainly hard taskmasters. Were they? Yes. Yeah.
1: Fascinating. Who was backing them in terms of their involvement and pegging?
2: Well, he had had a technical team who were quite active. It was in the Around 70, late 70s when the oil crisis was on right. and you know, gold started going through the roof, but anything had oil or coal, people were onto. It was right. a hot market.
1: Yes. So you pegged a whole lot of ground with them and then they walked away though in the end and yeah, then they no, reverted back
2: to you. Yeah. no, Well, I, I guess you know, initially I pegged the initial leases with another prospector. And I did buy him out. And then I did a deal with Hancock and Wright. And under that agreement, if they picked any other ground in an area of influence, they came to me if they withdrew.
1: Right. Jeez, Tim. All this started at an early age. How old were you then?
2: I would have been 23, 24. Right. Okay.
1: The exit strategy around these tenements, putting aside Hancock and Wright for a moment, how did you find the purchases for some of the pegging that you did in the early days?
2: Which is through contacts, geologists I've met and yep. uh, wheeler dealers. Yeah. And, and really there was a lot around in the late 70s and 80s. Yeah. And it's the 524 Brigade, you know, which housed a lot of small companies. You know, you could just go in there and you know, start <laughs> of level one and go to level six or eight or what it was. And you'd end up by the end of it, you would even got a bit of share script in your hand or <laughs> or, or a few dollars, right? Yeah. So that's literally what happened. My leases went into a small company, was controlled by an entrepreneur, Peter Briggs, and um, I became a director of that in 1980.
1: Right. Was that your first step into the corporate
2: world? Yeah, well, I was 26 then, Gosh. and green. <laughs> yeah, first um, role. Yeah, first role. Was, yeah, it's a, you know, like going into the uh, snake pit, really. But I learned a lot. The shares went well. A big mistake. I started to believe my own uh, BS. I got offered to you know, sell out, but uh, I didn't at you know, a handsome price. I think I got offered around 70 cents a share, which is pretty good. Yeah. And then but the stock then went back to about five cents.
1: Right. A Lesson learned.
2: Yeah. 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 Well, and, you know, fast forward a few more years. I had a disagreement with the other directors and uh, they did a 249D notice on me. I got kicked off and, you know, that was really quite interesting. You could write a book about what happened there, but I teamed up with Joseph Goodnick and right. we, we made a takeover bid for that company. And when I initially met Joe, Joe was flying in those days. The stock was five or six cents and I ended up, we ended up bidding 17 cents and the stock went to 70 or 80 in no time. Oh. And from a, a very negative situation, we managed to turn it around. And, you know, really it was, you know, for Joe and his supporters.
1: Joe Goodnick clearly is a, a well-known name in mining. Was he a great guy to work with?
2: Oh, tremendous. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And he, he partnered up with a lawyer called Harry Cooper. You know, they're great to do, very direct and honourable.
1: Yes. When you go back through the exploration part, did you have any one that helped you along your way in terms of a lot, teaching?
2: A lot. Yeah. I did geology at school and just got through. But, um, <laughs> look, you know, I got to know a lot of um, geologists who most of them are still alive. A few of my dear friends have passed now. Yes. But they taught me a lot, really the basics up, you know how to you know, get hold of all the data, first of all. I you know, yes. you know, learnt the ropes of getting the geological survey maps, The going into the library at the mines department. Literally those days you'd have to sit down and get a microfiche and go through each one, Yes, like a very laborious process. And there was very few people in that library doing that. So yeah, it was really over time and experience. And then literally going out bush and sampling areas and, and going from there.
1: And the grounding there clearly held you in good stead for later on, and we'll get to, in terms of geological analysis and assessment of corridors of good ground.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, I learned a lot.
1: I was just going to say, in terms of mentors, was there anyone that really stands out, Tim, in terms of that time?
2: In those early days, there was a guy called Bob Bryan. He worked for a company called uh, Mines Administration. I was vending leases into his company in and Bob went on to do very well in lots of projects in Queensland. He was a very competent mining executive. Yeah. He taught me a lot. Another geologist, Don Zinneman, who was head of Uranus Mining. And a dear friend, unfortunately, he's passed away, Duncan Wilkerson. Right, okay. He taught me a lot. And then, really, when I went into a public company, you started getting more geologists around you and some good, some not so good. Yeah. And, you know, you join things like the mining club those days. It yep. was a real little club. It's like, a you know, about <laughs> 30, 40 people there. Out of the we used to meet there yep. and then the Celtic club. So, you know, through that you've begun to, you know, meet people and, and um, communicate.
1: When you look back in the moments of that part of your life, combine farming with exploration. Was it being outside and under the stars, camping at night on prospective ground? Was it the excitement of pegging? You know, in the pegging rushes that occurred during those times when you had to be quick, or you know, was it being on the land and helping your old man in terms of, you know, what was going on in the farm, or a combination of the lot?
2: Yeah, no, all that. Yeah, absolutely, all of that. Yeah, yeah. So you know, I loved the farming, but it was hard to make a dollar, right? Yeah. Hard to get bigger, and hard for my family to get bigger. And I saw mining as an opportunity of doing quite well. Yes, if you quit, right? Like even today. You know, we come up with an idea amongst our companies. You know, first thing I say, let's peg everything we can, right? So yeah. I'm opportunistic, and I guess I prefer to peg before we think too much, right? Got it. Yeah.
1: yeah. You need to be almost aggressive at the football, so oh, to speak.
2: I, absolutely. Yeah, You do. Know, you can't divver around. And I think, you know, with the success of, you know, both Charleston, Linetown, and, and the other explorers I'm on the board of, that's really, you know, set in stone what we do.
1: That's a principle of what, the way you go about it. Yeah. Tim, you're sort of around the 30s heading into the 40s at this point. Now, we talked about it earlier, but you know you had a bit of a setback heading into just before you were 40 in terms of being diagnosed with leukemia. Now, that's a, a very tough thing to take on the chin at that point in life, as we discussed. I bring this up because it gives... The listener and myself, but also an insight into the character and the attack on life that you hold in terms of not being defeated. And I put that into life, but also work and play.
2: Yeah. Well, thanks, Tim. You know, it is a difficult subject for me to talk about. But at the age of forty, I was actually forty and two months, and uh, I got diagnosed with um, leukemia, and they gave me six months to live. So that was in 1994. Really tough time to. Well, the next 10 years, and you know, I still live with it today, but I'm very fortunate.
1: You've done extremely well, and congratulations on that part of your life, having been able to tackle it and then keep going. At that point, you've clearly had a few balls in the air with regards to your exploration and your companies as well. That would have been a difficult time
2: for a lot of reasons. It was. Well, you know, up to 40, I was flying along, really. I was actually... Can't believe it, but I was MD of two exploration companies, two publicly listed companies. <laughs> right. And I also was running a contract drilling company, which wouldn't pass the governance standards today. But uh, uh, yeah, no, I had a lot of balls in the air. Yeah. And when your GP rings you and says, Tim, I've made an appointment with your haematologist this afternoon, it was tough.
1: Oh, Tim. Yeah. Very tough. You push through this, right? And this is the interesting part with that in mind. You mentioned the drilling company. You went to Kalgoorlie. I did. And you bought a drilling company, Grinwood Davies.
2: Yeah, well, yeah, if we step back a bit, I guess Tony Keenan and I ended up with a public company by chance, really, but we won't go through the ins and outs of right. that. It was on the second board and uh, called Microcare. Anyway, I'd bought a 20% interest in it. And about three weeks later, it got suspended. Right, It was one of these you know, tech companies. So both Tony and I looked around for a deal and I came across uh, Grimwood Drilling and who we've been using for our exploration efforts. And we bought that and backed that into this company, Microcare, which we changed its name. Changed the name of that corporate structure a few times, a few iterations. End of the day, to give you a shorter version, yes, I did move to Kalgoorlie after buying. um, We bought half of Davies Drilling and and after a few years under management, moved to Kalgoorlie.
1: Okay. And so... With leukemia in mind, did you sort of battle through that for the first few years after that, Tim, under the medication they provided?
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I guess we actually had the drilling company before I got leukemia, right? I was spending time, I was in Kalgoorlie then. Yeah. So it was going quite well. You know, one of our main clients was Joe Goodnick and Ed Issues, right? So we had something like 25 rigs with them and it was all go. But so I got diagnosed with leukaemia, I did then have to unfortunately step down as um, managing director of that company. I kept on an MD of the two other ones and I guess, you know, moderated my health to a certain extent and um, focused on my work and leukaemia.
1: Yes. Um, Thanks for sharing with us, Tim, on that. And because I think it does put into context, you know, the early days. Living in Kalgoorlie, there's plenty to keep you excited. Lots going on. Was that a fun time, you know, when you landed up there with the drilling company?
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I loved it. You know, I'd gone through a tough time financially then. Right. And Kalgoorlie is very forgiving. You know, it's a level playing ground, you know, ground there. You know, if you did the right thing, people would give you a go. It was a really fun period of my life. Yeah. I you know, had lots of fun with um, people in Kalgoorlie and, and, and I guess, Tim, you know, your uncle was one of them. Yeah. And uh, so... Yeah no I love that never to be repeated I don't think yeah <laughs> 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 they were great days oh absolutely yeah, yeah yeah yeah
1: just on the drilling I reflect on that drilling in terms of you are somewhat hostage to the cycles of the commodity markets you know when things are on when the prices are right or if a particular if gold's on mm. you know there's so much drilling to be done we've seen that in recent times how did you with your drilling Managed to keep the home fires burning with regards to the cyclical downturns. Did you have many of them through at the
2: period? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No, we don't walk back into it. We had more rigs in the yard than out, right? And the company was hemorrhaging, right? So I guess with my farming background, I was you know a little bit mechanical and really hands-on, and um, so I you know I did go and rationalise the fleet and made it a lot smaller and a lot more efficient. Yes. And then I started to get into you know, when, when it was a uh, you know, tough market, it was very competitive, right? But I did sort of get close to some bigger companies. And then, you know, later in that iteration of my career, I got into, um, you know, Western Mining, BHP, Rio, and uh, several other large companies. In the iron ore? In the iron ore. Yeah. Uh, that was, you know, fast forward 10 years. Yep. But, yeah, you know, I was one of the major contractors in RC drilling in the iron ore. Is that right? Yeah.
1: And that was, so it was taking you right up north? Out of the goldfields.
2: Yeah. Well, I never th- you know, thought, well, if you could see the post office, you can't make any money, right? <laughs> yeah. It's just too bloody competitive. Yeah, right. Yeah. So you yeah. had to go out further. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I was talking to a friend, Richard Bennett, the other day, talking about drilling. Yeah. And he was saying that the rigs were Shram and Keith Litley drill rigs.
2: Yep. Yeah.
1: They're the ones you're on?
2: Yeah. You've been doing some work, homework. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, he spoke about it very fondly. With regards to that, what's a typical rig and getting it set up? Is it expensive?
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, you know, I've been out of the business for a long time. I sold the drilling company in 2007. Yeah. But an outfit then was costing you around $2.5 million. Right. With all eight wheel drive equipment and start the art drill rigs.
1: And to that point, because you became one of the sought-after drillers, best in class, someone else came and door-knocked you. You sold it.
2: Yeah. Well, it wasn't wasn't for sale, but you know, I guess everything's for sale at a price, but uh, (laughs) except my family. But yeah, no, I got approached from Macquarie Bank. Macquarie Bank Advent and Bain Capital bought Longyear and they were looking to expand that business before it was pre-float of the bought Longyear IPO. And uh, they bought my business. You know, they came to see me in early November and and the money was in the bank end of January of the following year in 2007. So it wasn't for sale. Right? Is that right? I made an offer which I couldn't refuse.
1: Well, that would have been quite nice given how you started out.
2: It was. It was a great check. Yeah. But, you know, my employees at Grimwood Days were just fantastic. Right. They were just so loyal and we had a bloody good time. Yeah. right. We, we, <laughs> no had, I can tell. we had good people, <laughs> good gear and a good reputation and we are pretty proud of it. All of us were. Yeah.
1: Mm. I'm so glad you brought that up because part of the thing that comes through so clearly with your career is the importance of team. And it sounds like that's where it was in the drilling business.
2: Absolutely. And it helped yeah. you. Yeah, no, no, it helped me immensely. All my employees did their best, yes. right? And it takes all sorts of people to, you know, work for a company, right? When you're going to look around, you don't want all PhDs or MBA graduates, and you're certainly not going to get them in the drilling company. But, you know, we had all sorts of ability, but, you know, their work ethic was great. They had a bit of humor. It's like a family company, which, yes. was, which I loved. So for
1: the listener, I can see, you can see Tim's body language light up when we talk about Kalgoorlie and, and the times that were there. I can see it's very a uh, fond time and looking back at it. With regards to that though, what would you say some of your best drilling stories were when you look back and you go, well, was it the, the road trips up north or was it the, the team or was it the Kalgoorlie life?
2: When you sell something, you only remember the good bits. Yeah. Right? There was a lot of really, really tough bits in the drilling company when you, you know, you've got fortnightly pays and you're thinking, where's the money is going to come from? You've got a slow payer. But when, when the money's flowing and exploration results have been um, received in new discoveries, it's absolutely fascinating. Absolutely so exciting. So, you know, the company participated in a lot of discoveries. We drilled the first holes into Bronze Wing, first holes into Jundee, first holes into Canal Bell, first holes into Thunderbox. That's just a few. Wow. Right? So you know. Really exciting. You get the core, you know, you have one rig just drilling away and they get some results back and you know they're onto something. Yeah. Was, and that was really exciting. And it was also really exciting to see, you know, to build a business which needed new blood in it and needed new energy and tenacity. And, you know, we were from, you know, we respect some of the gear was pretty tired. Yes. And, you know, I had an auction for two days when I took that business over, just get rid of all the old gear. It went on for two days and I think I managed to get in (laughs) (laughs) $250,000. It's like selling a wreckage yard. But uh, it was really proud to be out in the bush and you see all your rigs lined up. It was pretty good. Good feeling, yeah.
1: Through that time, the exploration bug hasn't gone away. The company leadership hasn't gone away. And have you developed at this point through, is there an overlap between the drilling business and then the start of DevX and the companies that had spawned
2: from that? Yeah, that was a good question. Well, you know, I acquired DevEx, which was those days. We were drilling for this company called and Minerals. Anyway, you know, I'll give you the lift version, but uh, I ended up buying 19% of that company while I was living in Kalgoorlie. Is that and, right? And still uh, a very good geologist who I'd worked with before. And, you know, it was a tight market capitalization. But the strategy was, let's just go and peg anything we thought was prospective. And we did. We pegged ground around Higginsville. Then we acquired the Chalice Mine down there. Yes. We pegged ground in the Northern Territory for uranium around Jabiru. We then pegged a VMS deposit out of Towers called Town. And <laughs> right. we had a menagerie of ground, you know. So, the you know, the, the, the model about being focused, with, you know, that, that, that was out, right? So it's like <laughs> it was... anything good we could peg, and we did. So what happened, um, actually, I was reminiscing this with um, Craig Williams, who's still yes. a director of Lion Town during the week. That I met up with Craig, and I knew Craig quite well during his days when he was with Continental, and he's headed up a company called Hunter Resources. Craig then went on to form Equinox, of course, and at that stage, Equinox had got onto a project in Zambia called Lomwana, and over a few reds, Craig and I decided to bundle it all up together. So let's put the base metals in the Lion Town. And the gold will go into Chalice. And both were IPOs. And we raised around $7 million, as you said earlier, yeah, yeah. Uh, for both companies. And away we went. And <laughs> the old bullion became Uranium Equities. And that's supposed to sail away. We had the A team from the Beverly Mine in um, South Australia and hunt for uranium, right? So, but it, it sailed away for a few years to Adelaide. But then I got it back, right? right. But uh, going down the angle of Chalice and, and Line I was either MD or executive director or chairman of those.
1: At the same time, you had just transitioned out of the drilling business because that, they'd it, been acquired. Exactly. And that's right. straight into them.
2: Well, you know, I, had an, I had a shareholding in them. But yeah. you know, my, you know, as a director, at that stage, I was a director and really thought I'd just take life a bit easier given my health concerns, you know, during yeah. that period. Then the GFC came along which, you know, it probably one of my faults. I can't not stick my fingers and nose and everything else into it. <laughs> I thought that we needed to restructure things in those two companies, and I did, and yes. went back to those companies full-time.
1: One of the quotes I took out of a, an article, Tim, it was an AFR article on January 21, and the quote was, I'm not really into director's fees, I'm an owner, I guess, and it seems to be a common theme in terms of the owner mentality. Did that start early in your career and then followed it through?
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I think it came from my parents, really. Yeah. You know, it's like building a farm. Don't pull all the money out. You got to put it back in. Yes. So, yeah, you know, I've, I've never had huge director fees. You know, I've received options from time to time, which I've exercised in full, but I've bought shares through issues, placements, and on market.
1: And kept supporting the company.
2: Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. And, yeah, no, I'm, I'm proud of that, but I am an owner. I'm yes. not interested there for the director's fees. It's a pain, in the, pain in the butt, tell you the truth. Yeah. You yeah, I've been yeah. a, a director of, and, you know, it's not easy. You know, if you're a competent director, you've got to do a lot of work. I want to read everything, yep. right? I'm not one of these directors who just get the board packed the night before and, uh, and not read it until I got to the meeting. So I take it very seriously.
1: When you look at the boards that you've been on, one thing that does come through is that you have a board that's very competent but also a board that you or a team that you can lean on in times of very difficult decisions so that you get an honest and straight answer.
2: Absolutely, yeah. Look, it's a bit like the drilling. A bit like, you know, I learned, I didn't learn early on, but, you know, I got run over a few times, but I learned that there's a lot more smarter people in the room than you are, right? You've got to know what you don't know, and I don't know a lot of things, right? But I do know when I find someone who's really good and I'll back them to the hill. So, you you know, simply incentivize them, include them, and get them to run it.
1: Yes. And the number of geologists you've dealt with in your career over time, how do you see the role of a geologist in modern-day format in terms of the building of these companies from the exploration right
2: through? Well, geologists are really you know, an integral part of it. Yeah. Right? But unfortunately, where geologists are trained, they're not trained commercially, you know, often aren't. You know, Sometimes they get the, com- the wrong commercial aspects of things and learn to get, you know, they go from the back of a rab rig, and the next minute they're running a company, and they haven't got that commercial now, and that's probably where I come in, and people like me, you know, is trying to turn their ability into, they're like investment advisors to a company, right, they got to advise what ground we should peg, drill, and where and what, and when, right, yes. but a lot of them lose track of that, and that's not a criticism, it's just their training, they're scientists, yes, Okay, and I've got the greatest respect for, uh, you know, many, many good geologists I've worked with.
1: And they've become integral to your business, clearly.
2: Absolutely. You know, it's a lot easier to build a company when you find something, right? But it's so bloody hard to find something. You know, people think every prospect's going to turn into a mine. I don't know what the number is. It used to be one in 100. I reckon it's one in 1,000, right? And, you know, it's getting harder and harder to find these things in geopolitically, you know, good areas. Yes.
1: I was going to get to this a little bit with Chalice and also Liontown, but the reference to a company-making prospect, it's definitive. You've got to find it before you can make the company. With regards to Chalice, you started out, and mm-hmm. it's a fantastic mm-hmm. timeline of different resources and the commercial outcomes that have come through. I was just looking through your AGM presentation, and if you went through and you started out with the IPO and then the sale of chalice in 2007 and then we went through to zara gold and acquired for seven what a deal mm. sold for us 114 can we just talk through this in a little bit tim just chalice is a, an unbelievable story but the way that you've built the company over the 15 years and how it's evolved
2: Yeah, well, it started a long time ago, as you just pointed out. But, you know, we did raise around $7 million, at 20 cents cents a share. And we went down and drilled, you know, the deeps at Chalice Mine there. We drilled it quite aggressively, drilling 800 to 850-meter holes and decided that, you know, it did cut off, right, a depth. We also had some ground, um, which is today is really hot ground, south of De Grey's Discovery, you know, which was made a couple of years ago. Yes. But we had ground in the Andiara original reserve. And we also, you know, spent a fair bit of money there. So, you know, eighteen months, twenty months, we really spent seven million, right? Well, it was six point five, right? And uh, anyway, going pretty for, quick. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's, you got to drill them, right? So, Avoca were making great progress at, at Higginsville, and we got approached and uh, for them to buy. They wanted to buy the Chalice Mine and the ground surrounding that. So we sold it and we got about ten million dollars of shares. So then we had to find something to replace it. So, you know, I do play the market and uh, I've sort of been in a couple, little company called Sub-Sahara and right. they used to have their autumn issue, their uh, winter issue, their spring issue. <laughs> and um, anyway, when, when the GFC came along, really there was no one else to take stock, right? So I gave them a call. They had this really nice gold project in Eritrea. And also, may I say, they had one in Tanzania. But unfortunately, the one in Tanzania got sold out just a whisk before we got there. We ended up merging with Sub-Sahara and they had a resource, you know, globally around a million ounces right. at 5.2 grams in the back blocks of Eritrea.
1: Did you spend a lot of time over there personally?
2: A lot. Yeah. Oh, absolutely.
1: How'd you find it?
2: Uh, again, it was, you know, a great experience. Yeah. It's, um, you know, it's a formal Italian country and, you know, Asmara's the capital. It's a beautiful old place, right? It's tough though, you know, it's an authoritarian government there. Yes. And uh, the people gone through, went, they had a 20-year war with Ethiopia. So the scars were on the country and the people. So the people were, were fantastic, you know, what they've had to go through. So, you know, we took control of the project and went into a large drilling program, upgraded, the, you know, all our support equipment, and our people and built it up and um, did a, did a um, several D- a PFS and a DFS on it. Yes. And then we were very close, actually, getting the money out of Europe for it. But we got approached uh, by a Chinese company, Shanghai Construction,
1: and that's how the deal took place. Yes, they decided to. They gave you an offer that you couldn't refuse. And it was
2: one of those, yeah, one of those moments. And, Gosh! You know, it's like, second time. <laughs> it's, it's like you know, Kenny Rogers sings. You know, you got to know when to hold and when to fold, on right? So, <laughs> but it was a very good project. You know, the reserve was about seven hundred and fifty thousand ounces at five point three grams right. open cut. You know, very juicy deposit.
1: Yes, that deal though would have given Chalice a platform to move. Oh, absolutely! Like, that was a, a game changer.
2: Well, the a dollar and the, the American dollar were about parity then. So it was real, real money. Yes. We, we had to pay $30 million tax in Eritrea. But we gave shareholders back, I think it was uh, $0.10 cents capital return. So if you paid 20 yeah, you know, it cost you 10 right? And then we gave a further cash return later in life of 4 or $0.05. Cents. Very happy shareholders. Yeah, no, we, we didn't go back to the market for you know, a long time yeah. after that. We did raise money. In, you know, we were listed on the TSX, but that was a hard slog we couldn't get traction there but we raised the money in australia principally
1: so the progress goes on you've got the cameron pro gold project in ontario so we've gone to ontario and then we end up back in australia and that's where things really get exciting
2: yeah we well, we we continued to look at projects around the world we ended up with the cameron lake gold project we acquired that and then we decided to sell it we did quite well financially out of that we didn't lose our shirt by any means And then we went into Quebec, and uh, we had a good project there. But we did the big company bit almost. We drilled it, you know, we we almost closed it all off, right? We we drilled forty five thousand meters of diamond drilling in two years, and uh, then we decided, well, you know, where's the next one? And um, we thought, well, let's come back home. Well, we applied for a lot of tenements north of Fosterville in Victoria, and um, we got our team. At the same time, we got our team focusing on you know, nickel projects. We had a big deal flow. Yes. Lots of deals coming through the door, but you know, we wanted to try and get into production, but we really, you know, our door was closed a lot, right? We, you know, we had, at that stage, probably 70, 80 million. We didn't have 250 million in the bank and a, and, you know, a producing asset. Yes. So you know, the bankers sort of draft you out, right? So you know, that was very hard to, to you know, get hold of a producing asset. Yes. So that's hence, that's why we built up our exploration team.
1: Yeah, right. Is it fair to say that at this point you're looking for nickel and you're scouring the globe, but at this point with all, with the ones that you've been through, you've haven't had the sense that they're a company making project. Is that right?
2: Absolutely. I don't yeah. think we left too much behind. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when you look back, because you, you, you know, it's, it's sort of the curse of an explorer, really, when you <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you, you knock something back or you, you drill something out and then drop the ground, you think, oh God, someone else is going to come and find something. But yeah. it really doesn't keep me awake that we've missed too much. No, right? okay. I think we weren't as aggressive enough of some parts of our, you know, my career. Yes. And, you know, um, That goes from the start, really when you know you're on a good thing you should really be aggressive and I'm quite aggressive you know in terms of trying to tie up ground now or you know sometimes you gotta be a bit more generous than you thought you should be in buying some ground.
1: So come back to 2020 and so you're back in Australia and then you're looking for ground and the Julemar project. It wasn't the Julemar project at that point but you've got the ground. Mm. Can you just give us a bit of an insight into how this unfolded? In Terms of the
2: ground, well, that really comes back to our you know GM of exploration at that time. You know, bearing in mind I'm off the board of Chalice now, but yes, um, yes, Kevin Frost, who I knew, you know, I employed Kevin and I knew him, you know, sort of 10 years earlier and uh, am working on a project. Uh, fortunately, he rung me as he when he returned from um working in South America, uh, said he was looking for a job. And first of all, when in court, I thought, God, who's this guy, Kevin? You know, <laughs> have I met him in the pub or what? Anyway, um, I put the phone down. I said, yeah, yeah, what's your number? And I put the phone down. I said, God, that's Frosty. So I literally, I rang him back and I said, you get yourself in tomorrow, here tomorrow morning. And uh, I employed him. And the rest is history. So the company was very much, you know, Kevin's background's nickel. You know, I'm a big fan of sulfide nickel deposits. been looking but not finding anything. So one of our Project geologist Morgan Fribas, is no longer with Charles now, but he and Kevin targeted that area and pegged it. And bearing in mind, you know, the Julamar area was probably number between six and ten in the prospectivity nature of the of the rest of the assets we had. So you know,
1: goodness. So for the listener, we're talking about Julamar, which is about seventy kilometres away from Perth, predominantly farmland, wasn't really that focused on as a general exploration target.
2: Cool. Oh, it was you know it was a target, you know it was a target, and we pegged it. Yes, uh, we moved pretty quickly to peg it. Then we had to do, you know, get the ground granted. We had to reach agreement with the landowner. Yes, who happened to be a person I knew very well, Peter Bartlett, who's you know Kalgoorlieite and a well-renowned uh, mining entrepreneur, well-known, and ran Barmenko, owned and ran Barminko. So anyway, we cut kind of agreement with him. Our exploration team did initial. Sampling of the prospect and picked up some elevated copper, uh, sorry, copper, nickel, and, and palladium, platinum values. And we did some geophysics and then we went and drilled.
1: And that's when it, yeah. I think it went, it was around the 220, was it? When Almost COVID. through COVID, was yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
2: yeah. Yeah, the whole, whole office was supposed to be at home, but <laughs> Kevin Frost and I were the only ones in the office when they haven't. <laughs> And I can remember that a young geologist called it in from, uh, on his mobile and said, you know, Kevin, you know, I've, I've hit massive sulfides here. And Frosty came in, and, and Frosty's a man of few words. <laughs> he said, I think we might be onto something, right? And anyway, time went on for the next few hours, and we drilled. I can't remember the exact numbers of that intersection, but it was 20, 30 metres thick, and we couldn't believe ourselves. Yeah, it was yeah, incredible. Incredible, incredible.
1: Mm. At that point... Chalice went, in proverbial terms, ballistic, in terms of its value, yeah. after announcing it was the largest nickel sulphide find globally in over 20 years, and was the biggest platinum group's element discovery in Australian history, establishing the foundation for a world-class green metals project. How did that actually, I mean, I know you said it was an interesting time, but how did that feel?
2: Oh, I still, I still got to pinch myself, right? You know, it's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was at Chalice's AGM and, I'm, you know, I'm in very interested in supportive shareholder. And I was sitting on the other side of the lectern yesterday morning and I was listening to the, you know, the presentation by Alex. Yes. And yeah, it was unbelievable. Some of the widths they're drilling now and actually knowing the science behind all, of it all, you know, the, like the lookalike oil bodies around the world. Yes. And this geology can produce just huge deposits, right? And I, you know, I think we will be drilling there, Chalice will be drilling there for the next 10 or 15 years. Right. And, you know, clearly these things, massive or large as they are, but, you know, nature's got a way of hiding them. And, you know, we're going to find a lot more there.
1: And After 15 years and you're on the other side,
2: hmm.
1: how does it feel like not being at the helm?
2: Oh, I think you've got to know, I, I guess it comes back to my nature. I like to, I'm not a control freak, no. but I really like to drive the ship. Yeah. Right? <laughs> you, know, you can't drive 10 ships at once. So you've got to get the right person, the right team in there, and particularly you know, as one gets older, you need to you know you need to delegate doing that in itself is fantastic. actually, looking at you know the team we got in there, led by Alex, you know a young guy, I gave a chance you know when Alex joined us, he was circa thirty, and I know when I was thirty, I thought I knew everything, and Alex did too, but but <laughs> he's proved himself, you know. It's fantastic to see that in the team, right? So it feels pretty good.
1: Well, I couldn't help but note uh, on your retirement. And Tim's alerted to Alex Dorsch, Managing Director and CEO, but his speech, I'd just like to reiterate. On behalf of the Chalice team, I would like to extend my most heartfelt thanks and absolute best wishes to Tim, who has been an incredible influence on me, both professionally and personally. I owe him a huge amount of gratitude for his exceptional leadership and guidance over the past four years. Tim has steered the company through a remarkable journey over the past 15 years, overseeing its transition from gold exploration in Australia and Northern Africa to its current status as one of the most exciting discovery stories in recent history. Chalice has delivered a remarkable return to shareholders over this time and Tim has been absolutely pivotal in this long-term success. We wish him the very best for a well-earned retirement and we are very grateful for his continued support and advisory capacity. I mean, that's pretty powerful stuff when you're coming from a guy that you employed at the age of 30, and it must have made you feel proud well, on well, a number of levels. It, it does. Yeah. You know, and, yeah.
2: And, and, you know, I've got no children, but I, I see Alex as, as one of them.
1: Oh, yeah, That's really special. Simultaneously, we've got Liontown. Liontown, also listed in 2006 at 20 cents. It's emerged, as I said earlier, into a Tier 1 battery minerals producer. That's a story in itself as well. I mean, could you just give us a bit of background to, to Craig and yourself, well, clearly at this point?
2: Yeah, well, we got the facts straight the other night over dinner at, down at Steve's, but uh, <laughs> in about 2004, Craig and I, it was a wintry day and we had two bottles of uh, Hinchki down at Steve's and talked about, cut the deal about putting Equinox's ground together with, with my stable, and hence uh, what came out the other end was Linetown. Town. yes. So we had nickel, a nickel deal at Higginsville, which was part of the Chalice ground we had down there, uh, and Equinox were, were farming into that. Equinox also had ground around Ernest Henry, and we had the Town deposit, the VMS deposit in near Chalice Towers. Yes. So, you know, it seemed quite easy, you know, like-minded people, we put the deal together in no time, <laughs> uh, you know. And uh, probably by the end of uh, the first bottle, we had it squared away, and the second one was for celebrating. <laughs> uh, but we floated, raised $7 million, and then, uh, again, we had um, several rigs drilling at, uh, in uh, Queensland at Lyon Town, and we were spending money. Like, straight off the bat, we had two or three rigs in there, and then the GFC came along. Yes. Uh, and we are about to push the button on a, on a large placement, and the GFC came along and we were financially embarrassed, basically. We had, you know, less than a million dollars in the bank and we had to rebuild ourselves. So we we did sell that deposit ultimately, but we didn't get paid for the whole lot. We sold it to Gigara and unfortunately they went into liquidation. So
1: so that when you're at a million dollars, you haven't got a lot of time left. Is that right?
2: Yeah, no, well, you know. During the period of Town, it got down to 20 grand, I think. And, <laughs> right. and, and so I'd, I'd have the company secretary come into my office just standing there with his mouth opening saying, how are you going to fund this thing? I'd, Don't worry about it, you know? And but to so, me,
1: Tim, this goes back, right back. you know. Yeah. And, and I'd maybe just pause there and just say, well, this is where – whether it's intestinal fortitude, whether it's the willingness, the persistence, the ability to keep going, to see opportunity in periods of time where an uncertainty is surrounding you. Clearly at Liontown, this is one of those moments.
2: Oh, we had several moments like that in Liontown. Definitely. And then also, you know, DevEx, particularly. Chalice was, you know, after doing the deal near Eritrea, we were cashed up, we were rich. You know, it's a lot easier to, to operate when you have money. Yes. But Lion Town had a bumpy ride. But, it, you know, it does come back. It's, it's in my DNA, I think. It's from my parents. You know, mum and dad are very optimistic people. My sister and brother are. A real
1: glass half full.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like, you know, you had to be when you're farming and yes. you had to be when you're prospecting. You had to be when you're over a drilling company. And, you know, one of my dear friends uh, owned a large contracting business. And he said, Tim, just keep the humour up as we knock back a couple more beers, right? So, <laughs> you know, you've got to have a laugh like you are now, Tim. Yeah. And it, can get, it gets you through, right? Yeah. And, you know, the alternative is not very good. No, no. Mm.
1: So at 20000 in the bank and a mining company to operate, things were starting to get a bit hairy at that point.
2: Yeah, and, and of course, you know, you're very reliant on your shareholders. One thing I've learnt... And I've learned over a you know, period of time is the only good is your shareholders. right? Yes. And, and I've got a very supportive group of shareholders and I recognize them. Number one, look, I've got the ship to the right place, but those shareholders have been rock solid. You know, you go and look at the register of Charleston, Lion Town, people's lives have been changed. Yes. Right? yes. And they were, would walk over hot coals for me. Yeah. And have. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Which is a huge amount of respect.
2: Well, it's both ways. Yeah. You know, you become friends, right? And I've never bullshitted to them. No. And I expect, you know, and they've been really supportive, right? And it, there's been some tough times, right? You know, people put their hard-earned money, it doesn't matter how much money or whatever you've got, but, you know, the person putting 10 grand in and then, you know, it, buying Town at two cents and, you know, next minute they're worth um, a million dollars. Uh, there's a lot of people done that. Yeah. You know, you know my cleaner... My cleaners, you know, put money and they retired for a year and a half and, you know, made a few million dollars. You know, I was down in Boston last week and a guy comes across with the parking lot and said, are you Tim Goiter? Anyway, it turns <laughs> out that he, he'd retired 10 years earlier, right? We've got lots of stories, life changing, you know, people my age have, you know, lost their money and, yes. and have put the last 200 grand into one of our stocks and made money and, and now living very, living very well. Yes. yeah, Yes. And that's, you know, we've got to continue on with that. We can't drop the ball now, right? But it is very gratifying. Yes. And some of those people, you know, I rung up when we only had 20 grand in the bank and, you know, trying to cobble together. I remember trying to raise a couple of million dollars for... Start drilling at um, Kathleen Valley. And, you know, we had a few holes into it, but, you know, you go around the analysts and and much as I respect them, they all give you a heart. Oh, this is not quite good enough. That's not good. Yeah. Oh, you got a problem with this, a problem with that. And in hindsight, that did me a favor because I had to write a check out for a bit more money and take a bit more stock. Yeah. So, (laughs) so, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, So, the moral story I love my shareholders and I love the financial market who've supported me.
1: Yeah, and the capital markets have been very important.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, if you're not in unison with them and you're trying to raise money for exploration, you know, look, there's lots of alternatives in the market, isn't there? Yeah. You you see that, Tim, in your day job. If you're uninitiated and you're trying to find out, you know, put the pin in the, or the dart in the dartboard, which one do I go for, right? It's quite hard. You know, I find it hard.
1: So, Tim, continuing on with the Lion Town journey, how did it go once you came out of there? So your shareholders have backed you in. You're on your way back out from the trough, so to speak.
2: So we were in Tanzania, you know, after we were selling our Queensland projects and I will just going you know, to try and condense it. condense 10 years into a couple of minutes, but we then went to Tanzania and um, we discovered a uh, small deposit there which we we're expanding around five or 600,000 ounces and we we're about to consolidate further ground. But at the time there was a shift in the politics in Tanzania and uh, the new president wasn't friendly towards mining, and essentially our leases wouldn't get renewed. So we knew we had to do something, and I guess I made a decision, and I recommended to the board that we get into lithium, and, and which we did. So, so just
1: it, pause there. What ma- the lithium price was moving? The lithium price
2: was moving, but you know, being a bit of a car nut, I'd sort of looked at EVs and yes. I thought, you know, you know, sometimes in in mining or in, in a lot of things, you've got to make a pivotal move. And, it's uh, a macro way in, in yeah, it, essence. It, it, it was, yeah. Um, we did have a look at lithium in Tanzania, but that you know, prospect didn't go far. Yep. But we looked out through Africa and then decided, well, you know, the best place to look is in Australia. And we acquired the Bino Lithium Project and Kathleen Valley and Baldania almost in succession.
1: Right. Going forward, though, Kathleen Valley became the predominant focus.
2: Absolutely yeah and that's mm.
1: when clearly things started to move in a in a purposeful and meaningful direction for the lithium. It,
2: no it did with the, with the first you know few holes were really interesting, yes, and then I guess it's, you know the market was falling away the lithium price had that initial you know run to a thousand dollars a ton, yeah, and then it dramatically fell back you know up by the stairs, down by the escalator <laughs> and we're you know we' were in a trough. So, um, you thought, here we go again. Yeah, here we go again. <laughs> so, um, we were, you know, wore a bit of shoe, shoe leather out, and so we eventually raised some money and, um, went back and started drilling some deeper holes. It all started to come together. We got, you know, instead of one rig in there, we got two of three. And then as we drilled it down dip, it was going each way, you know, north, south and um, to the west. And, you know, we got intersections, you know, up to 70, 80 metres thick at good grades. And, you know, the tonnes really bulk up then. Yes. Considering it's over 1.5, 1.6 kilometres long. It's amazing all body. It's going to be a rock factory. Yeah.
1: Wow. Mm. I was reading your AGM chairman's address, Tim. And just a couple of snippets, so I just thought it would be worth highlighting for the listeners. Town is now aiming to play a leading role in the lithium supply chain, underpinned by the exceptional quality, world-class scale and Tier 1 location of the Kathleen Valley deposit in the northern goldfields. Late last year, it delivered a definitive feasibility study for the Kathleen Valley project and now has binding offtake agreements in place with a Tier 1 customer consortium, including LG Energy Solution, Tesla and Ford. Combined, these agreements represent 90% of Kathleen Valley's startup production capacity. That's phenomenal.
2: It is. And, you know, the person should take the acknowledgement for that is Tony Ottaviano, our CEO and MD. He negotiated those offtake agreements and he and his team. And Tony came across from BHP. It's a bit like me talking about Alex, but Tony's not my son. He's my uncle. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Tony's. Like, you know, he's come from the beginning of, uh, of town, he was up the pointy end of the management of BHP, and he's come in, in May last year and taken the reins of Liontown Town. As a board, in 2020, decided, look, we don't want a whole lot of explorations running a mining company. Yes. We've got to find some miners, and it took us a while. Yeah. You know, we interviewed a lot of people, and I was lucky enough to get introduced to Tony, and... Um, took me a while to get me out of BHP, the comfort zone, but he has done that and it's a great result.
1: Oh, mm. I mean, I have to ask, the negotiations with Tesla, was that an interesting experience?
2: Well, they kept me out of it most of the time, right. because, uh, uh, but <laughs> I mean that nicely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Look, they're great people. It took some time, but all these things take time. Uh, all good things take time. And we've got three very, very good, strong partners
1: from a, a, a macro level, when you look at this, you know, they are talking about car companies having to find a source, a resource to be able to supply the battery minerals that they need to make the batteries. Hmm. You're seeing it firsthand. Did they approach Tony or did Tony approach them or is it, is that how does it unfold in, in the real world in that respect?
2: Well, I guess when, you know, if we go back a few years, you know, we decided to try and keep our project 100% owned. Right. And, you know, we did have interests from other folk a couple of years back, but really we as a board decided, no, let's not do that. Let's prove up what we've got there. Yes. So when Tony joined us, we'd assembled a team and we used a merchant bank, Green Hills, who worked closely with Tony, and we approached all sorts, you know, players in the business all around the world. Yes, right. Right. So then, you know, some OEMs said, no, there's no way we want to get that far down the supply chain. And well, most did. Most did. So you're dealing with, you know, traders really. But it's, it, it started to turn, right, and it took us a little while. Everyone you know, sort of expressed interest, but we'll come back later when, you're, when you've done your DFS. So during that period, we started to get more traction, right. and we got a lot of traction. Like, we got a tourist bus full. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and good people, top end of town. Yeah. And, you know, they've been great. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's sort of, it is, you know, there's a new paradigm shift for the price of lithium going up every day. Yes. You know, if you're a buyer, it's a bit like trying to buy a house. You think, God, am I missing out? I'm going to miss out? Get the fear of missing out? Or am I buying the right place and the right price? So Tony and his team managed to work through all that. And, you know, hence the deals with Tesla and LG. And, and Ford was a little bit different. Ford just didn't want to miss out. Okay. They said, how can we help you? we were negotiating with the trading banks and we we're very close to signing a term sheet with them however you know the old story you got to know what you want and we wanted 300 million on you know straightforward terms and conditions and that's what we got from ford in in record time so they're
1: very happy to come to the party
2: they've been tremendous yeah been absolutely tremendous
1: so that's so interesting well lion town when you look at it it's got the the capex spend coming up to develop the mine mm. And then you've got a refinery in train after that, is that is that the pathway?
2: Yeah, absolutely. In November last year, November, December, uh, about now, really. Um, yeah, we, it's raised, quick. we raised approximately four hundred and sixty million dollars in one one day for replacement, and that really has helped us dramatically. When you're dealing with offtake people, you know they're not dealing with a weak counterparty, you know been Lion town, we you know we're strong, right. And that really set us up. Yes. And, you know, support from the capital market was tremendous. Yes. And some of our, you know, mums and dads' shareholders. So, you know, with that, we're able to close these offtake agreements. We uh, were able to, at that time, we released our DFS and we then went into FID or final investment decision really quickly and feed, you know, all at the same time. And um, so we're into construction now. We've, you know, building the camp, there's going to be a 580 people camp. We've let the, the power contract, the renewable power contract, or the whole power contract to Zenith. And that's going to be one of the biggest renewable power projects in Australia in re- relating to a mine. Yes. So, you know, we're about to issue the other major contracts over the next uh, three to four months.
1: I noticed that Liontown was awarded the Emerging Company Award at the recent Diggers and Dealers, which is a, is a big accolade and, and, and fantastic. But when you look at what's going on, it's not surprising.
2: Well, look, it is, you know, I've been involved with diggers and dealers, you know, on the other side of the fence for a long time, you know, and went to the first one when Jeff was there and most I think I've only missed a couple, two, three over the years, but to actually get, get up, when Tony got up and received that award and yes. get the support, is absolutely fantastic. We're, you know, we're very indebted with the, um, with the diggers and dealers, that award and we treasure it.
3: Just
1: when we're talking about diggers and dealers, how did it feel to get your award? What a celebrated company that you're well, in. And
2: unbelievable. Oh,
1: it's unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, well, I mean, looking at it from the outside, let alone yeah, how you feel.
2: Yeah. You know, it, it was fantastic to get that award from your peers. Exploration is a very lonely business. You've got it or you haven't. You know, I can remember leaving many diggers and dealers feeling a bit jealous, actually. You know, not having a deposit, still, you know, rolling around the dirt and dust trying to find something. <laughs> and you think, geez, how, how do we crack the code? And... uh and we've got two within, within three, you know, in quick succession over three years. Yes. So to be standing up in front of the, you know, twelve, thirteen hundred 1,300 people and, you know, making a short speech is, you know, a real highlight of my life.
1: Oh, good on you. Well, as I said to you before, congratulations. Thanks, Tim. 2021, uh, I must say, Tim, was a fairly big breakout year. You had all the companies running hard at once. And I, I, just for the listener, I, I came across an article in the Australian Financial Review in November 10, 2021. And just bear with me, but I just think it, it sums it up at the end. The article goes a bit like this. Mining entrepreneur Tim Goiter became Australia's newest paper billionaire on Wednesday after the first two days of what by Thursday evening could be a remarkable critical minerals treble. The lithium developer that counts Mr. Goiter as chairman and 17% shareholder Liontown Resources will on Thursday publish a feasibility study into a new Australian lithium mine and hopes to spark the sort of market frenzy generated by Tuesday's news that Mr Goiter's chalice mining had made one of the best Australian mineral discoveries since the turn of the century. The 35% rally in chalice shares over the past two days sparked a 26% rally in a third company that counts Mr Goiter as chairman and major shareholder, Devex Resources which is searching for critical minerals close to Chalice in Western Australia's Julemar province. The huge week of corporate activity for Mr Goida, who also owns 12% of Chalice and has stakes in another ASX-listed company such as Mineral 260, took his paper wealth narrowly past $1 billion during Wednesday's trading session. And this is the point. I don't believe it. I am the same person. I've got my feet firmly on the ground, he said when asked... How the billionaire label felt. It's not only about the money. I've aspired to make discoveries and create something, and we have done that. I find that part very invigorating. I'm a man of simple means. I like a nice bottle of red and a lot of laughs. (laughs) I just read that and I thought that wraps it up. That 2021, when you read the background, is phenomenal. How you've been able to, it's almost like the stars aligned. And after all of the hardship, and I put that into context of your health, the times when things were tough, the drilling company when it was in reverse cash flow, and you built that up, the days on the farm when it's dry, and you know, it's tough. And you bring it all together, and it accumulated, it's like you won the premiership in one year, and, and then the, the way the Fin Review described it, I thought was, was quite special at the bottom. and gave it a lot of reality. And I, I think for the listener, that really reflects the way Tim's expressing himself at the moment. I just wanted to highlight that. Mm, thanks, Tim. It's, um, yeah. it's been, a, I mean, and you've not, you overlay that with the, the recent award and it's it's been a good couple of years.
2: Oh, tremendous. Absolutely tremendous. No one can doubt that. <laughs> <laughs> no.
1: So I just wanted a, a quick side note. Middle 2000, 2014, 15, you met your wife, Linda.
2: That's, oh, you know too much... <laughs> and I,
1: uh, I I just I just thought it's it's special because it's special in a number of ways. And I was just wondering, because the purpose of finding the front is more about understanding what drives the person and the key supports and learnings that they've had and people who have influenced. And clearly, Linda's been a big influence. How did you meet Linda?
2: Oh, fr- friends introduced us. Yeah. And uh, we sort of, you know, got on very well. The first date and the second date, you know, we were, went off the movies and... <laughs> We got to know each other quite well, really. <laughs> <laughs> it's fantastic. Yeah, uh, I you know, married late, and, and when I was sixty, you know, we've got a fabulous relationship. You know, Linda loves what I do.
1: She loves the uh, ups and the downs, and the uh, well, well, it's she's, probably been more ups and downs.
2: Well, yeah, that's right. I keep saying this, these <laughs> markets don't always go up, but you know, she, she co invests with me and takes a lot of interest in what I, you know, what I do, yeah. and attends all the shareholder meetings and goes on road shows with me around the world. Yeah, and is a very big supporter of mine, and I'm indebted to her.
1: That's oh, yeah. fantastic. Yeah, And the other part of that, I suppose, with Linda is, have you looked at farming again? Is it sort of, I know now you've retired off Chalice. Is farming coming back on the radar a bit more, Tim? I'd, or?
2: I'd love to get a farm. Yeah, <laughs> but, <laughs> which you're <yeah>, right. <laughs> but the runways get shorter. That's the problem. You know, The reality, <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, I love cattle. You haven't and, lost that interest, no. And, and absolutely, and who knows what will happen but I enjoy what I do now and I enjoy life and enjoy people.
1: Yeah, fantastic. I know I'm very conscious of your time. I have got a few sort of questions and I, I frame this around, there'll be a lot of people listening here that are aspiring managing directors of listed companies. There'll be corporate people who are interested in how you've done it. There'll be owners who take the path that you've expressed of you know, ownership and investors that have got heavy equity in companies and they're interested in how you approach things. So I just wanted to come at it from questions, from these sorts of aspirants that would would be interested in your views. So the first one, and, and I think this one was really interesting in terms of survival, survival of the small cap world. It's a key characteristic that I've observed with mining entrepreneurs over many years, that they totally back themselves. It's almost an unwavering confidence in their ability to be able to achieve what they set out to achieve. Can you just give us a bit of a, a quick snapshot on, on what you think it takes to be that mining entrepreneur to get there from your experience?
2: I think you've got to be very hands-on. You've got to listen to people. Yes. You've got to surround with you. I know, you know having small company, you can't always get the best board or the best technical team, but you know, get a good, tight team around you, including the board. And you want your board to actually do some work. Yes. And, you know, it's a contact game as well in terms of knowing someone on the board may know someone else to make a phone call. So, you know, you've got to run it really tight and you've got to be committed. It's a 7 day a week job, really, and it's not from working from home. It's uh, yeah. in the office, in the bush, on a plane. It's a total commitment. That would be my advice. Yeah. But also surrounding with a small team who are committed, right, and being open I guess when I look back at my career, and I've missed a few opportunities and got very close to some really good ones, put the cynic mind behind you. Yeah. Sometimes you've got to have a go when you see an opportunity.
1: Yes. Thanks, Tim. We touched on this with Chalice and Town, but the challenge of finding a company-making prospect or resource. When do you leave a prospect behind? Don't get too attached. And when do you spend the dough and go for it?
2: Yeah, that's a tough one. Because yeah. uh, you know, these all bodies, You know nature hides them. And sometimes you can walk away from something you know, pretty good, but I guess if we ever sell anything, we always want to try and keep a royalty involved. We're slightly different companies now in terms of Town and Chalice, but you know in Devex, it's you know back to a small company, and you know, we've got a very aggressive exploration program now. We've spent seven million dollars this year. We've got seven geologists We're just putting on another one now. But you know have a few bets in the game the way I see it. And, you know, keep going through your portfolio and dropping the ones which aren't so good. Got it. And I don't think we're going to drop anything which is going to be a, you know, a Julamar or a Kathleen Valley.
1: No. That brings us to the point of identifying great geology, obtaining tenements in the right structural corridors. But I think not only that is the ability to hold it and hold it. And through those times when it gets tough, still hold it. And that seems to be something you've been able to do on multiple occasions. I mean, you have turned over some of the projects, but there's others that you've held. There's a real art to that.
2: It is. You know, I'm not a geologist. As I said earlier, I'm an owner, I'm a commercial guy, but I'm a yeah. mining person as well. I don't fall in love with projects. Right. You've got to rationalise them. You've got to turn them over. And also, but, you know, good ground, like, you know, DevEx, we've got, The uranium project we've had for approximately 13 years now. That's a long time to keep them together. Yes, And the uranium price slowly edging up, but we've got great project there in the Northern Territory.
1: The other question that stems from that is the best way to prove out a prospect and increase the value. And I know from what our conversation really, and I've heard it said before, value is created through the drill bit. How do you see it?
2: Absolutely. But you just got to drill the right spot, right? That's, that's, <laughs> that, that's the challenge yeah. uh, and the opportunity. But when you get onto something, you've got to get in drill, right? It's a total commitment. And you can do all the talking, promoting, have the best website, blah, blah, blah. But you know, it's nothing like putting a good set of drill results out to get the market interested in and hence your investors. So it's everything really. And also, you also got to build My team's done this, is, you know, put out reports which are succinct enough that the average investor can read. Yes. All right. You know, even I I look at presentations and reports, I still can't understand them, right? You know, and we work hard to actually try to, you know, come from the side of an investor when we release reports. Yes. And not too much verbiage in it.
1: Makes a lot of sense. We touched on this earlier, but the persistence through cycles, your remaining confidence in yourself and the business. And I think particularly in Liontown, when you started moving into lithium and the lithium price came down, it really did suffer in terms of the stock price. But you maintain your confidence in, the, in that macro theme you could see was going to come on.
2: Yeah, no, no, it's a great move. Yeah. But I think that you can't chop and change too much. You, you, can, you can chop and change, but you've got to make sure that you, you're moving to something better. Yes. Right? And we had nothing better than Kathleen Valley. But also, you, you get onto a good project and they're going to have their day right? You just got to wait out the cycle. So if you can prove up a mine in a, you know, when copper prices are a dollar a pound or whatever, yeah. we know copper's going to be today. It's, it's a good business and tomorrow going to be an extra good business. So I'm quite agnostic as to commodities. It's just getting onto the right asset. At the right time. At the right time.
1: Yeah. Talking about that, when you were drilling, and I suppose you would have seen that straight away, but the power of the gold price making exploration ground more attractive when previously a company may have gone over it but not probably gone to the same effort when there's been a significant rise in the gold price. Have you seen that a lot through your time?
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Having the drilling company, you saw it in quick motion, right? You (laughs) know, having 25, 30 rigs drilling, you know, things were, you know, in the 80s, they have been discovered left, right and centre. So, you know, it's gone, a tremendous amount of exploration has gone since that period right so you know millions of meters a year were drilled and but you know rab rigs were drilling down to 80 90 meters and now they're probably drilling to 150 170 meters rc rigs are now capable of drilling three or four hundred meters before they're only only drilling you know 150 200 the you technology's know, getting so technology's much ch- exactly that's yeah. right
1: just on that how are you seeing the gold price tim
2: i'm a bit of a bull in gold right. i think you can find a good you know gold share if you do quite well <laughs> That's you know, good. Yeah, I think you know the world's a bit of a crazy place at the moment. Inflation may get under control, but it's, you know it's been a currency move, hasn't it? You know, with the uh, U.S. dollar getting so strong, yes, and people chasing the dollar. But I think once you know, techs hit a hard spot at the moment. Cryptocurrencies hit a you know, really hard bit, spot, bit of a bump, and, and I think you're going to see people come back to gold. Yeah, both in the equities and, and and also the physical.
1: The importance of team we touched on, so I won't go into that one. But I just one of the things, and we've highlighted your career, but there are so many within the mining industry that have followed similar paths, but are yet to have a win or yet to taste success. You would have seen that and, and you would have been in that category at some points in your life. And just give us a bit of an insight into the nature of the career path as a place to try and make your way and the uncertainty that prevails around it. Well,
2: I guess actually just doing it, you know, like the end result for me now is, you know, very gratifying and gratifying commercially in the amount of dollars our shares are worth. But yeah. really, you can be a, a real participant and respected by doing your work in this business. Yes. And, you know, the mineral deposits are hard to find. Circumstances occur where people, you know, miss out on things by a centimeter or two right, and changes your life. There's a real sliding doors business this is. You can miss out on things and look, and it's very hard. It's hard to be upbeat all the time um, when you're an explorationist yeah. and particularly a geologist because they always get blamed, right, and they shouldn't get blamed, right, and it's not easy to find. So, you know, you're setting the bar very high to try and find these deposits. Yes. I think, you know, the big thing is, is trying to keep everyone's confidence up a bit and it's easy to work for failure. Yeah, not success. Yeah, I really respect the hard work people do in this business.
1: The, the follow-on from that is the excitement of building a company in the resources space over the years and that rush when you're onto something and the, the win and the feeling of it. You might produce your first gold bar. You might find a lithium deposit, which you've just done. That adrenaline, can you describe it to us?
2: Well, I've got different adrenaline at the age of sixty-eight as I would have had thirty-eight, uh, and I wish I'd made some of these discoveries uh, when I was younger. Oh, look, it's one of satisfaction. Yeah, yeah, blood pumps where you never thought it would pump again. But um, you know, and 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 having that, I guess, being reassured that you've actually found something, yeah, uh, is a big, big thing. And it's like anything in life, you've actually you know have that better inner confidence that helps. So yeah, it's a damn nice feeling rather than failure. Or not failure, you know, in this game it's it's it, it, it's success. It, it's success, you know, but I do say, you know, to people and I'm no god at this really end of the day, is that you've got to keep going, right? And keep a bit of humour. Yeah.
1: One thing that I just we touched on capital, we've touched on shareholders. I, I just in terms of working around the world, you've seen some amazing spots, you know, Eritrea, Tanzania, the US, Canada, Australia. Did you take things away from each region that have really shaped you in terms of that experience?
2: They were quite quite different, but you're dealing with people. Yeah, right. Right. So you actually gotta I learnt this, you know, early on is that you've got to be able to get on with people, communicate, and build up a level of trust. You know, it's like having trust in the relationship of anything you do in life. Yes. But also when you go into a foreign country, it's their country and you've got to be able to build up that trust. They've got to have trust in you. Yeah that you're not going to you know, make them look foolish. And, you know, I, I, I try and do that. Well, hopefully it comes naturally when I'm doing business or doing anything in my life. Yes. Separately
1: to mining, Tim, you love red wine. What's your favourite red? It sounds like it was
2: Henschke. I think all oh, the Henschke rays, pretty hard to beat, <laughs> mate. It's the house red. <laughs>
1: and look, I had one other side note too. I, I was having a look through and I noticed that You've got a cousin called Richard Goiter, and both of you share the same second name, Bar, B-A-R-R. What's the heritage there?
2: Well, it's our grandfather. Fantastic. Yeah. Randolph Bar Goiter. It used to be called Bar because Randolph wasn't really the in name. Right. Yeah. So that's where that came from. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: No, I just noticed it's not an often well-known name, but um, now it all makes sense. And he clearly owned West Farmers and chair of Woodside and Qantas. Do you guys have some great conversations around business at Christmas time?
2: Oh, no, well, quite often. Yeah, yeah, I bet. Yeah, no, it's, you know, Richard's a great guy and his feet are firmly on the ground considering his responsibilities and he's he's a cool cat. Yeah, right? yeah. You know, we're different personalities, but we certainly, um, we get on well and, and um, and I uh, you know, really respect Richard, what he's done and you know, and his ability to be able to do all these jobs, right, and get up and, and make fabulous speeches and, you know, he's someone I look up to. Oh, yeah,
1: fa- absolutely. Look, Tim, I, as I say, conscious of time, but I just wanted to say thank you, firstly, for taking the time out. There's a saying in life that I heard that I think reflects this conversation, and a day without laughter is a day wasted. And I think that really encapsulates what we've discussed today in terms of your attack on life. I talked about it earlier in terms of challenges that have been thrown your way. And thanks for sharing, you know, some of those challenges, which are pretty serious challenges that you've overcome. And you've got to a point in life where to see you experience success, but also have a laugh and be able to enjoy it. And one of the key factors of your team building is that you can have a laugh and make sure you look on the glass half full side is pretty, pretty special. It has been bloody awesome. We've covered some ground and I think the listeners and I are privileged to have got this insight into your life, but also your views on, on your profession. And I think people take a lot away from that. Your resilience, your persistence, your optimism carried you through some enormous financial and team success. So with all the best for your companies to take the next stage, it's very exciting. And on behalf of Euros Hartleys, we do appreciate you taking some of your valuable time out to join us on Finding the Front and look forward to another chat one day.
2: Yeah, I love it, Tim. Thanks very much.
1: Good on you, Tim. Thanks again, mate.
2: Thank you. Cheers. Bye.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Finding the Front, brought to you by the proudly West Australian wealth management and diversified financial services company, Euros Hartleys. If you like what you heard, please don't hesitate to tell your friends and subscribe to the podcast through your podcast host of choice. If you have any questions or would like to contact us, please email our fabulous producer, Bridget, on communications at EurosHartleys.com or visit our website at www.eurosshartleys.com This podcast has been general information only. Euros Hartleys holds a Australian Financial Services Licence 230052.